Let's take our Bibles. Let's do Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4, if those of you are just joining us, uh, Daniel's a really neat book. It's an exciting book. The book has all these different miracles, all these different stories about Daniel. Most everyone knows about Daniel in the lion's den, you know, from Sunday school class. Uh, a lot of folk know about Daniel in chapter 1, what happened where Daniel was captured and taken as a slave, he and his friends, in 605. There was three different attacks against Jerusalem, 605, 597, 586. And so in a series of attacks, the Babylonians took some in the first attack, they took some of the nobility as hostages back to their land of Babylon, and then they come later and they get, in 597, they come and get more Jews as hostages, including Ezekiel. And then finally, the Jews keep on rebelling. 586, they totally wipe out Jerusalem. And so Daniel ends up in 605 in a strange land, and uh, it's a foreign land. He doesn't know the language, but he's going to be, he's picked as one of those exceptional young men to be trained to be become a wise man, probably the predecessors of the wise men who visit Jesus that were from that region of the world, who are basically scholars, philosophers, individuals who are trained in all kinds of languages, skills, and they were to help work for the Babylonian government as leaders and supervisors. And so that's the setting of the book. And what happens in Daniel 1 is Daniel is placed there. He's told he's got to eat certain food that is non-kosher, non-Jewish food. He and his friends, they propose an alternative, give us basically vegetables and some different food and test us and see if not by by being obedient to our God, not eating forbidden food, see if we don't look better. And after 10 days, they look better. And they excel in uh, different areas. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream about the different, uh, different nations and empires, and it's a historical dream of the time from Nebuchadnezzar all the way to the end of the ages when Christ will come back. And we've studied that, so let's move to chapter 3. Another event happens. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are told with everybody else, bow down and worship this statue who is either of Nebuchadnezzar or a statue of his God. But either way, he's implementing this worship that he wants everybody to follow. And uh, we don't know where Daniel is in that story, probably out of the area taking care of government details. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to bow down. They get cast into the fiery furnace. And the story is that all of a sudden there's four people in the furnace, one being the Son of God. And uh, then they are told to come back out. Nebuchadnezzar and his, his people can smell smoke on them. There's no singeing. They are perfectly fine. And it's, again, a, an indication to the Jews that God hasn't given up with them. Even though they're in a strange land, God is with them. God is able to protect them. And so it's an encouraging story for the Jews to find out. Now we get to chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. But it starts off when he does the chapter in a really different way. Look at chapter 4 where Nebuchadnezzar starts speaking. Verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king unto all the people, the nation, languages that dwell in all the earth. And I remember from his perspective. Okay, we're not talking China. We're not talking, you know, South America and the Aztecs and things like that. From his perspective of the known world, that's what he's talking about. In all the nations of the world, peace be multiplied unto you. I thought it good to show the signs and the wonders that the high God had wrought towards me. How great his signs, how mighty his wonders, and his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. And it's really interesting that Nebuchadnezzar would start off this chapter, that he is writing it. Interesting that God would let this man, unsaved, quote-unquote pagan man, write some inspired scripture. And he starts off with his praises to God. He starts and says those, and then go to the end of the chapter. Chapter 37 is his 
ending, he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are truth, his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. And so he gives this praise to the Lord. He wants everybody to know it, universally, everybody in his kingdom, to know how great Jehovah is, the God of the Jews. And so he's going to start off saying God is great, and he ends up saying God is great. In the middle, he tells the story of how he came to that conclusion. And uh, he talks in verse 3. It seems like a hymn. If you look at verse 3 and, and read it through, it seems more like it's like one of those hymns, ancient hymns. So it could be a song that he sang. But he gives his reasons in chapter 3, in chapter, uh, should be chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 37, he gives the reasons at the very end. He says, here's why I want to praise God. I want to praise God. And he makes these, his works are true. He's not deceptive. He's not tricking us. Do you remember in ancient worlds, did a lot of the mythological gods, were they deceitful at times? Were they tricksters? Okay. You even have like Loki and these others in different mythology that they were, they were sometimes very evil and deceptive beings. So he's saying that this Jehovah God isn't that way. His ways are just. He does what is right always. He is right. He is, he is uh, one who's, uh, I'm going to use the word fair. Okay. He, then he says he humbles the proud person. And that's the gist of this story. That Nebuchadnezzar is going to have a personal um, inter- interaction with God so that God would bring him to this point where he's giving praise. And so he says, this is what this great God is. He's not deceptive. He's always true. He's always just in what he does. He's always does right. And what he did to me, in other words, in bringing me down, it was just. It was proper and it was right. So he tells the story what had happened. Okay, And we start off in chapter 2. If you start reading through, it says in verse 5 um, that it, it gives the account. I'm sorry, verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house, and I was flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream, a dream which made me afraid. The thoughts upon my bed and the visions on my head, they troubled me. Therefore, he says, I made a decree to bring all the wise men of Babylon before me. And so let's put the setting in. Okay, This is about 20 years after the fiery furnace. Remember how he ended the fiery furnace saying, hey, everybody, the God of the Jews who protected these three men, he is true. He is mighty. Now, 20 years later, he's forgotten some of that. And so he's going to get a remembrance, a reminder, if you would, about the troubles. And so he's been ruling for about 35 of his 43 years that he's been in charge. And so he's been on the throne a long time. In fact, think this through. If he's ruling, I think it's 43 years, it's in the notes later on, that he rules. That is for a lot of people's lifetime. He is the only king they've ever known. So that's very impacting to the people who are listening to this man who they grew up and he is the ruler. And so when he speaks and says, God of the Jews, this is really impacting. And so everything's been going great at this point in his, in his career. He says that I was at flourishing in my palace. In fact, he says that I was at peace. Now, that is either socially, politically at peace, or he was sleeping physically. I'm not sure which, and nobody really knows. And then he has this, scream that's, this dream that scares him, and he calls for the wise men, the same type of group that he called when he had that other dream in chapter 2. He calls for them to interpret the dream. This time he does something different. He tells them the dream. And he says, here's what I dreamed. Tell me the interpretation. But just like last time, they can't interpret. Nobody can give them an interpretation. But last time, who was the only one who knew the interpretation? Daniel, or his other name? 
Belteshazzar. And so the next few verses, look what it says, that they call for Belteshazzar, and he comes in, and it says that Belteshazzar is the master of the wise men, uh, or the magicians. Now, that causes some people conflict. Why would, why would Daniel be involved with the idea of leading magicians when, when magic is forbidden in the Old Testament? And so some say that some, there's a conflict. There's no conflict. Okay, the word head of could be he is above, he is more excellent than. It doesn't mean organizationally, it's just the idea far better than, okay, the Hebrew word. And so he is much better than these guys, more, uh, more, uh, much, I'm going to say it wrong, more wiser, okay. Um, He is more competent. And so he comes in and Nebuchadnezzar has great confidence, look at verse 9, where he says, uh, O Belteshazzar, master of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you. No secret troubles you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I have seen in the interpretation. Thus were the visions. And he tells Daniel what the dream was. And when Daniel hears the dream, after he gets the whole, the whole gist of it, Daniel's thoughts. Jump down to verse 19. We'll come back and look at the dream in a minute. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished. Anybody have another word in their translation? I have astonished for one hour, and his thoughts troubled him. Anybody have something different? He was, a, what was it? He was appalled. Okay, what's that? What'd you say? Dumbfounded. Perplexed? Okay. And so you have that he's dismayed. Okay? He's astonished. The idea is that, okay, there's, there's some confusion. There's some, some feelings here that, woof. Okay, God's making it clear to him. He's understanding. But this is troubling to Daniel. Daniel is troubled by what, by what he understands this interpretation. We'll come back to that in a moment. When the king sees Daniel hesitant... And read the next couple of verses. Daniel is hesitant to say, well, here's what the interpretation is. And the, dream, and the king basically says, hey, listen, tell me the truth. Just lay it, you know, tell me as it is. Don't hide it from me. And so Daniel tells him what the meaning is, and Daniel makes this comment. He says, this dream is for your enemies. In other words, it favors your enemies. The people who don't like you, O oh, king, they're going to like what I'm going to tell you. Because something bad is going to happen to you, and your enemies are going to like it. But... You know, Daniel isn't excited about what's going to happen. And so the dream basically, here's the gist of the dream. Let's jump down to verse 10. The dream went this way. Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 10, I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth. The height thereof was tremendous. The tree grew and was strong and the height thereof reached unto the heavens. The sight thereof to the end of the earth. So it was so big that you could see it everywhere. The leaves thereof were fair. The fruit thereof was a lot and it was meat for everyone. The beasts of the field had shadow under this tree. The fowls of the heaven dwelt in the boughs of the tree. All the flesh was fed by this tree. I saw in the vision of my dream upon my head, upon my bed, and behold, a watcher or a messenger, okay, in the Hebrew, a messenger and a holy one. What's a holy one referred to? Probably an angel, some heavenly being. Came down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, cut down the tree, hew it down, cut off his branches, shake off the leaves, scatter the fruit, let the beasts get away from under it and the fowls from... Now, what do you have? Your next word. Okay, watch the transition. The transition, the tree, everything goes from a neuter pronoun to a what? A masculine proper pronoun. Okay, and it continues the rest of it. It says, um, you know, cut off his branches, nevertheless leave the stump of his roots in the earth, 
even with the band of iron and the brass and the tender of the grass. Let it be wet with the dew of the heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts of the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from man's. And let a beast's heart be given unto him. And let seven times pass over him. So in the, in the dream, Nebuchadnezzar is understanding that this, dream, this tree is representing a... We're, we're going with, with people pronouns. So all of a sudden, this tree is representative of uh, some person. Okay, and it's clear right away, even, even as he's telling it. And then he says in verse 17, The matter is by the decree of the watchers and the messengers and demand by the word of the holy ones to the intent. And he, and, and he knows. He knows. Look, look at he, gives, he says, this is why this is happening. To the intent that the living may know that the Most High is what? Does what? Okay, he rules in the kingdom of men and gives, to, to, gives it to whomever he will and steps up over the, ba- the basest of men. This is the dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now tell me the interpretation because I know you're able to do it. You're the spirit of the gods with them. And so the dream is real simple. You can understand it. It's all about this whole idea that there's this, this, this massive tree that is providing for everybody and then it gets cut down and the condition of the tree is just a stump that's bound together, it's, it's you know, hemmed in, then it lasts for seven years, and so Daniel says, okay, here's the interpretation. As I mentioned, okay, he's hesitant, but now he tells it, and he gives it clear in verse 22. He says, oh, let's back up to verse 20. The tree that you saw which grew and was strong, whose height reached unto the heaven, the sight thereof to all the earth, whose leaves were fair, the fruit thereof a lot, under which all the beasts of the field dwelt, upon whose branches the fowls of the heaven had habitation, it is you. You're the tree. You're this, you're this phenomenal, this, this entity that's grown that everybody in the known world is amazed by. How big you've become. And so he says, you're going to get cut down. You're going to be cut down and you're going to end up dwelling with the beasts of the field, which he goes on talks about. He says, your greatness has grown, reached into the heaven. And verse 23, whereas you saw a watcher, holy one, come down from heaven, saying, hew down the tree, destroy it, yet leave the stumps. He goes on, he says, that's going to happen to you. This is the interpretation, O king, verse 24. This is the decree which has come upon you. Verse 25, they shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be in the beast, with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass as an ox. They shall water you with the dew of the heaven. Seven years shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of heaven. And whereas they commanded to leave the stump of the tree roots, your kingdom shall be returned or sure unto you. After that, you shall have known that the heavens do rule. Where Therefore, my ki- so he, he tells them everything. He says, you're going you're to have this tragedy come upon you and uh, you're going to lose your kingdom. The thing you're most proud of, you're going to lose. And it's going to be kept for you, but you're going to be in bondage. You're going to be in the fields. And uh, so he says, you, oh, king, you know, with this, God's going to humble you. He's going to make you like an animal. You're going to live like an animal for seven years. And you're going to suffer this form of whatever you want to call it. Okay lycanthropy or something of that sort, you're going to have this mental, uh, this mental condition that you're going to be like an animal. And then Daniel says to him, which is amazing, which is amazing, he says in verse 27, Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto you. Break off your sins. Th- that's an amazing statement. Okay? It's very bold of Daniel because what's he telling the king? He's basically saying, you've done, 
You've done wrong. Now, when you tell kings that they've done wrong, okay. Now, it never happens in American politics. You can, you can criticize American politics and they don't tweet back, okay? Right? That doesn't happen? Okay. In, you're, telling, you're telling the king who is, by the way, in those days, the king is, he has authority of, how great is his authority? Life and death. He has life and death. If, if he doesn't like you, he can do what with anybody? Yeah. It, remember the wise men that, that couldn't tell him the dream? What was his intent to do with the wise men? Kill them all. Kill them after he's invested all this time and energy and money to get them to be wise men and train them. He's mad at them. He wants to kill them all. I, the king is, this king is, is um, unlike anybody in this room. This king has a temper. Nobody here has that. Okay. Haha. <laughs> this king, he flies off the handle. And Daniel is saying to him, you're doing wrong. This is going to happen because this is correction from God Almighty. You know, typically you would think after Daniel said that, he should go like this. Okay. Because the king was going to react. Why doesn't the king wipe out Daniel? He, well, he's telling the truth. And what has he already said about Daniel? He, he said twice now, Daniel, you have the spirit of the gods with you. You can do this. What does that tell you about his, his relationship with Daniel? He trusts him. He has great confidence in Daniel, and so he listens. And he, Daniel says to him, you've got to break off your sins. You've got to start doing righteousness. Okay, which is implying, if I say to you, you've got to start doing righteousness, what's that implying? Okay, you, you haven't been doing a whole lot of it before. Okay, and so he's saying, and he says, you've got to start showing mercy to the poor. Okay, which, by the way, most kings, what do they think about the poor? They don't care. Most kings don't care. Who do they care about? The rich. <laughs> Isn't it? Aren't you glad we don't live in a day like that? Okay. <laughs> Um, and he says, show mercy to the poor that your days may, of peace may be lengthened. And so Daniel is speaking very bluntly, very boldly, but at the same time, Daniel isn't doing it in a way that is obnoxious. Okay, he's doing it in a, he's been invited to speak, he's speaking, he's saying to the king, and so you have in this, Daniel speaking very pointedly, remember that Daniel has already expressed to the king he cares for him. How do we know that? We've already talked about it just minutes ago. When Daniel was told the dream, what was Daniel's reaction? He's troubled by it. He's hesitant to say something. What does that say to the king? Either you're deadly afraid of me or you care. And Daniel even says this dream. If, if Daniel was really against him, Daniel's reaction might have been, I like this dream. This is cool. But Daniel says, this dream benefits who? Your enemies. Your enemies. So Daniel expresses you know, very clearly that he has a, you know, I'm going to use the word, okay, and take it for whatever length. He has an uh, appreciation or a fondness for this king. They have been ruling and working together for how many years? 20 plus years at least because it had to be 20 years plus there was that time of uh, time even between the, um, the vision dream and the fiery furnace. That was another 10 years. So they've been probably working together as 
compatriots. Remember, Daniel ends up being the second in command for a period of time. They've been working as president and vice president for almost three decades. Do you think there's some type of bond between them? And so Daniel's speaking to this fellow, and they've you know, been talking. And so we have what happens next is just the story just keeps on unflowing. It says, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 29. At the, uh, how many months go by? Okay. Okay, a year goes by. A year goes by. The king's been warned. He knows that he's going to suffer. He's strolling on his palace, it says. And while he's strolling on his palace, he all of a sudden forgets Daniel's warning from a year ago. Daniel was pointed, and he starts saying, oh my, look at what he, what, what he does. The king spake in verse 30 and says, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? And so your question has to go is, Nebuchadnezzar, why, how is it that you possibly forgot the warning Daniel gave you and you even knew that this was going to happen to humble you, to avoid pride? How could it be 12 months later you forget that and you start boasting? How is that possible, folk? He's human? What do you mean? Let me ask you a question. Okay, please, not to be silly. Do you remember what I preached last Sunday? Very good. <laughs> I didn't preach last Sunday. Okay. Okay, let's, let's make it closer. The last sermon I preached, what was it about? Job is a really safe answer. Yeah, it's really safe. Do you remember the point of the message? What happens? What happens in a period of days? Do we, yeah, all kinds of stuff. That's the way. To, so is it, is it really that, that astonishing that 12 months goes by and he forgot the warning? Is that so impossible? Critics of the text say, oh, this is, this is, this is a made-up story because surely somebody who's been given a vision by God would remember it the rest of their lives. You've got the entire word of God. And do we forget it at points? Okay, so human nature is just really strong at times that causes us to be forgetful. And so he focuses everything on what I have done. Okay, now the second question is what would cause Nebuchadnezzar to become so arrogant? Why would Nebuchadnezzar say, Look at all the great things that I have done? Woo, you know, look at my majesty. Why would he do that? Well, there's several th reasons we'll put it with it. One, his human nature is arrogance and pride. By the way, how many people have pride in their human nature? Except for those of us who say we've reached humility. Okay. And when we say we've reached humility, we've just become proud. Okay, so it's part of all of us struggle with it. Okay, he has, Nebuchadnezzar has experienced a lot of human successes. If you know the history at this time, Okay, he's been ruling for a long time. Everybody is kowtowing to him. He is. He is prospering. We heard about it in verse 4. I'm at rest. I'm at peace. Everything is going really good. His empire, remember we looked at this a few weeks ago. He is called the empire of gold by Jeremiah and others. And history even records that they had a tremendous amount of gold and some of the, what they built there. What they built there is even one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. 
It's, what he did was amazing. I'll give you some facts about some of the city that he built in just a few moments. But he is also described in the dream that Daniel had given from God that he was the head of gold. He was the premier of all the ancient empires. So he's bragging because from a human point of view, he's pretty outstanding. He's pretty done some amazing things. But as soon as he brags, what happens? We read in the story that it says, um, While the word was in the king's mouth, verse 31, there fell a voice from heaven, from heaven saying, The kingdom has departed from you. Oh, by the way, isn't this amazing? It just says, What is the thing he's most proud about? The kingdom. What's he lose? The kingdom. Okay. And so uh, God deals with them. He's seven years afflicted. At the end of the time, he's going to be restored. But we read about that what happens is he's out in the field, verse 33, the same hour the thing was fulfilled. They was driven from the men, did eat grass as an ox. His body was wet. His, his hair grew long. His nails became like bird claws. And at the end of the time, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, My understanding returned to me. I, uh, I blessed the Most High God, and I praised and honored him. And that he would live forever, whose dominion is from an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing compared to God. And he does according to his will within the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stop his hand or say unto him, What are you doing? At the same time, my reason returned unto me, for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor, my brightness returned unto me, and my counselors sought unto me, and I was reestablished in my kingdom. So this is what happened. He gets restored, and you understand all that. What does the story bring, bring for us? Okay, the story highlights this one truth more than anything else, okay, and that is humility. That there is the aspect that, like Nebuchadnezzar, all of us need to take this lesson, which is stated twice, that God wants to make sure that we understand that we aren't proud before the Lord God Almighty. That He and He alone is, is the one to be magnified. And there's two reasons why you and I should be very, 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 very careful about pride and try to focus on having a more humble spirit. Two reasons why. Number one is God hates pride. Now, not just from this story, but let's add to the, go to the book of Proverbs. In the book of Proverbs, God says six things, yea, seven things I hate. They are absolutely uh, detestable to me. And he lists them out, but the very first one is a proud look. That idea of pride, he says, that is the most despicable. Do you remember what Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel excuse me, says about Satan? That Satan in his rebellion was lifted up in pride. It's the granddaddy of all the sins. So pride, he says, goes before destruction, that haughty spirit before the fall. A pride, man's pride will bring him low. So God makes it clear, I hate when people are proud. Because when people are proud, then they think they can do their... What? They can do their own thing. They can do whatever they want. They don't have to give him worship. So we know that God hates pride no matter who it is. Even if it's somebody who's successful. And Nebuchadnezzar had good reasons, folk. From a human point of view, he was extremely successful. When we talk about what he's done, he's got position, he's got success, he's made the money, he's, you know, he, he's the head of Babylon. That city Babylon is an amazing city in the Old Testament era. The city itself was seven miles in radius, which is a huge ancient city. The city had two massive walls. There an outer wall and inner wall that went around the entire city. These walls were amazingly huge. And so they were, they, were, uh, they were massive. And then on the inside, there was multiple buildings that were multiple stories high. In one of the buildings that he had, every single brick that was used had the imprint of his face. 
This, this, this is an amazing feat in the ancient world. It has one of the seven ancient wonders, uh, wonders of the world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. So when he says, this is an amazing city, haven't I done a good job? He did a good job. It was an amazing sight. It was, it was phenomenal. This, this, even today we look back and say, what he did was phenomenal. And so he could say, okay, I've done a good job, that's great. But he wasn't supposed to. Because he's taking the glory to himself. Remember, this man has power of life and death. This is the individual that he, had, that he could, at a whim, cause anybody to lose their life. And the people feared him. Chapter 1, we read about it. The people taking care of Daniel's food. The wise men. Everybody feared this guy. He was in a position of power. He's, you know, he's even in the dream he had. He was considered to be the ultimate leader. So he's an individual that, had, remember, when the best of his soldiers... Well, they were the ones that cast the three men in the fiery furnace, that those who did it, they died. But they would obey his command even at the life-threatening situations. And he wants everybody to worship either himself or his God with that big statue back in chapter 3. And so this individual was a very pompous individual. Okay, very, very arrogant man uh, by human standards. I remember going down to Williamsburg one year. And when we were down there, one guy, this guy did a presentation of George Washington. And this is the time that he did this whole thing. One little kid raised his hand and said, hey, tell us, you know, in the Q&A afterwards, tell us about that cherry tree that you cut down. And Washington answers, says, I was a farmer. I never cut down a cherry tree. And it went back and forth. The little kid said, you know, yeah, I heard it in a book that you cut down a cherry tree. And the actor portraying him says, I never cut down a cherry tree. Why would we ruin a perfectly good tree? And finally the little boy got quiet and he said, then all of a sudden he shouts out, Ah, you're just kidding me. No, George Washington wasn't kidding. Okay, the character was trying to portray. The, the, um, the, uh, sto- the boy, uh, somebody else in that audience asked this question. They asked the character from, who's uh, expert in Washington's writings, What do you want to be or what would you consider your greatest achievements and accomplishments? I would have expected the character to say from the writings of Washington that he, first president, anything else that would be famous for? General who beat the world's best army at that time. Instead, the character portrayed what Washington had written, that he hopes that he goes down in history as being a phenomenal farmer. One who is able to develop some different types of new modern uh, uh, industries in farming. And especially that he thought his greatest achievement was the cross-breeding of animals to come up with a mule. And he says, I hope history records that I am the father of the mules. It's like, wow, I never expected that answer from from Washington's writings. Which displays some type of character that is impressive. But Nebuchadnezzar wasn't that way. Nebuchadnezzar, he was, he was you know, intent on being a very proud individual. And we know that God hates pride, okay? Because he, he alone deserves. He made clear in this passage, Nebuchadnezzar's response, that I had to realize that God sets up who he will, he takes down. He can even put the basest of people in power and authority. That God knows everything. He knows the dreams. He knows the futures. And so you have this setting where pride is pointed out. And you have the setting that here in this text that substantiates the rest of Scripture. If we're proud, it'll lead to other sins. He has to say to them, break off your other sins. The proud people, the proud people like Nebuchadnezzar, they can be rash. They don't think they can be called in question. They can threaten other people. They can have a proud person thinks they're justified in being angry at any and every opportunity and moment that they're angry. 
A proud person will justify their gossip. A proud person will justify how they might mistreat somebody. A proud person will, be able, will simply justify that they can speak their mind when they ought to be holding their tongue. And Nebuchadnezzar did this. He demanded the worship. He sacrificed his soldiers. He let his temper get out of control because he's proud. Because he shows cruelty. You go back and, and read in Jeremiah. When he invades um, Jerusalem, he puts out the eyes of a lot of the different leaders. And he's just, he's cruel. But he believes he's right in doing this because he's a proud man. You, got, you and I have to stop and say, wait a minute. How many times have we justified an angry reaction, critical remarks, impatience, and we justify it in our pride that I can do this because of who I am or what I've done. And Nebuchadnezzar is a tragic story that God hates pride. Enough to bring a person low, even somebody who is at the peak of their career, that God all of a sudden makes him like an animal. That he has this struggle with lycanthropy or whether it be zoanthropy, where he's all of a sudden because, becomes mentally incompetent. There are stories of people becoming like this. There's an American statesman that had married and lived with his wife, had a wonderful marriage, but then all of a sudden, with the loss of a child, she developed a mental disability that caused him to be able to keep his wife in his home, and he built into the cellar of his house there in Virginia. He built an area where she was kept down there, but she was absolutely insane. She acted. She howled like an animal. She, she was vicious at times like an animal, physically attacking. She ate her food like an animal, and she spent a number of years in that condition. He cared for her. He loved her, but she had to be chained up all the time. And you guys all know this character, okay? Famous American character who ended up in his, in his years, even as he was governor of Virginia, he had to keep his wife in solitude, and it was a secret of her bad condition. He made that famous speech one day, give me liberty or give me death. But his wife never experienced the liberty. Do you know who he is? Patrick Henry, yeah. And so this does happen to people, and it happened to Nebuchadnezzar that he went into that condition for seven years, kept down that way. And so God in his sovereignty, God in his greatness, he can humble us. He can humble any one of us. We ought to be careful. There's a preacher who was talking in, these, you know, in his service. He gave his, gave his resignation this Sunday morning after being there for several years. And one of the elderly women came up afterwards and she was sobbing and she was saying to him, you know, you know the idea, she says, um, you know, I, I'm so sad to have to see us go through this situation. He said, don't worry, don't worry. Public committee would do a good job. They will find somebody who's a good preacher to replace me. And she says, yeah, that's what upsets me. She said, that's what they said the last time. And look what we got. You know, so that humbling moment for that preacher that came, you know, real quick. It, it can happen. It can happen. Okay? So we need to work on being humble because God hates the pride. But I'll give you a second reason. God exalts the humble. We read about this in James where God says he gives grace. He resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, in the sight of God. He shall lift you up. And so Nebuchadnezzar remains insane until he knows or recognizes that God is in charge and gives the kingdom. And at the end of his days, he lives those seven years. He lifts up his voice and his understanding returns. Now, here's a big question, okay, just for a few moments. What are the evidences of a truly humble person? Now, don't do this. 
don't stand and go like this. Because okay? <laughs> uh, you know, that, that would, shows the opposite. I'll just think about it. What does a humble person look like? Okay? I think some of these are true. The humble person is inclined to put others first. They don't brag. They don't, they, they don't have to be boasting about themselves. They don't always need to be picked or put in charge. They work at letting others go first. They, they will ask questions and listen to what others say, giving the impression that what others say is important instead of always having to interject. Think humility. They serve in menial tasks. They give up their rights at times. Um, I, this, none of you ever do this. But when I'm driving at times, I want my rights when somebody tries to take it away. None of you would do this, okay, I'm sure. But there are times when I'm driving and somebody, you know, they want to take the right of way, but it's my right of way. My initial fleshly response is, I'm going to continue to take my right of way. And I'm going to get too close. You know, I'm not going to break when I should break. Just to show them that it's my right. You're driving like an idiot. You know, that I'm, that I'm now, you know, pushing. And I, and I have to stop and say, that just comes from simple pride. You know, it, it doesn't make any difference who gets the first right-hand turn. Does it really? No, not in, the, not in the scope of eternity. And with an accident, then you know it's... You know, so we have to be careful. There's, true story. 1986. There's two Russian ships that what they're doing, they're in the Black Sea. And a number of people, you can read, the number of people died. These two ships were on a collision course coming across the Black Sea. They radioed to one another that they should move. But they, they both radioed back, I'm on my course, you move. And neither captain would give way until they realized that they were getting too close and the other wasn't giving. And when they finally turned, it was too late. And 423 people lost their lives because somebody wouldn't give way. That's an amazing story. Does that ever happen in life and in emotional ways? That we can sacrifice kids we can sacrifice relationships because we're just insistent, my way, my way. And so, you know, you look at it and say, wait a minute, you know, I should work at humility. Humility isn't, the, isn't saying compliment me, compliment me. It's seeking to compliment others. Humility is learning to say I'm sorry. This true story of a gentleman, Stuart Blackie, who was teaching in divinity school. And he had certain rules, and the certain rules included this, that when you get up to preach, you're supposed to hold your notes or your scriptures in the one hand. And so he was very particular about this, okay, for whatever reason, that in his class on the homiletics, you hold your notes in this hand, and then you speak, okay? And if you gesture, you gesture with the other. It was his thing. And so one day, one of the students got up, and the student was standing there and held his book in this hand. And Blackie had apparently not had a good night's sleep. He got up, he walked to the front of the classroom, and he took the man's notes and put them on the desk. He said, you can sit down. I have this rule. You know it's this rule. And he lectured him in front of the whole student body that was there about how he violated his rule holding the note or the book in the wrong hand. 
And the young man was broken, obviously. He was shocked, and he started to go back. And Blackie, as, he, as the young man's going, he said, he said, turn around. I want you to answer me. Why would you not hold that book in the proper hand? And the young man then held up his arm, and he had no hand. His hand was missing. Blackie was stunned, was embarrassed by his tirade, his lack of understanding, his quick judgmental spirit. And right then and there, he apologized to that young man. And he asked him to forgive him for his pompous attitude, for his quick and, and condemning reaction. That young man ended up um, sharing the Word of God for a number of years and ended up preaching. And in a, in a meetings he was holding there in England, somebody gave that story, that illustration about what had happened with Professor Blackie. And at the end of the, ser- the service, this same man who was in the room, visiting preachers, stood up and announced to the audience, he said, I was that young man, and he held up the stump of his hand. He says, I was that, that's a true story. And he said, let me add to this. I got saved weeks after that incident, and I got saved through the witness of Stuart Blackie, but I never would have listened to him if he hadn't expressed some such humility. Humility goes a long way, even saying you're sorry. Remember the silly movie that says, love means you never have to? Yeah, the love story. How wrong biblically. In humility, there's many times we should say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. But in pride, how many times we don't? And how many people do we affect adversely by our lack of humility? We just finish it off. Let's, let's, let's make this comment. You seek to be blessed. Humility before God, okay? It acknowledges that God is in charge. Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges that God is the one who established the kingdom. He gives God the glory for it. And so you, if you're like Nebuchadnezzar and you humble yourself, you admit. You admit your own sinfulness. You admit that before God. You are not this gift to, to creation, but you are a sinner before the Lord. And so you and I need to be sensitive to humility, that we understand that God's ways are right and just, even if he humbles us by seven years of lycanthropy. That, God, you're just. You're always just, whatever you do. And so he gives adoration. That's how he concludes the chapter, giving God adoration without complaining what happened, but just saying, God be praised, God be praised, God be praised. And so we end up with humility, okay, or else we know we have troubles. (laughs) Anybody here of Walter Cronkite? You remember him? He's going along the river up there in Massachusetts where he, or in Connecticut, in Mystic River, where he has, uh, has his boat. And he says, I'm going along. And there's a boat of young people going by. And he says, they're calling across the water. I'm not hearing what they said, but surely they must recognize who I am. And he said, and I'm, I was convinced they were yelling at me, hello, Walter, hello, Walt, Walter. And so I'm waving, I'm waving, and my wife's in the boat looking at them, looking at me, looking at them, looking at me. And we get a little bit further, and she says, what were you doing? He says, well, I was just acknowledging that they were calling to me. Hello, Walter. He says, they weren't saying hello, Walter. They were saying low water, low water, danger ahead, low water. You know, we immediately think it's about us. 
It's about us, and it's not. Other lessons, let me wrap up. It's good to listen to God when he exposes our sins. You ever think about that? When God exposes your sins, it's good to listen to him. And aren't you glad he does? That he's gracious enough to do that. It's good to give God praise when he exposes our sins. Instead of getting angry with him, give him praise. That he's concerned that you and I, you know, if he says, be more merciful, do acts of righteousness, it's good to give God praise after he has taken whatever steps are necessary to humble us. We don't like this, but this is true. Okay, God will humble us at times, and when he does, we should give him praise, that he cares that much for us. Number five, it is good to give God praise because he always does what is right and what is best for us. Always. Okay, we're going to come to worship this morning. Give God praise.